Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studio in Atlanta, it's time for Senior Salute Radio. Senior Salute Radio is presented by the Elder and Disability Law Firm of Victoria L. Collier. Hello, and welcome to Senior Salute Radio, presented by the Elder and Disability Law Firm of Victoria L. Collier. I am your host, Victoria Collier. Senior Salute Radio brings timely information to leading-edge boomers and seniors addressing the issues of aging, caregiving, and maintaining quality of life. Each show, we will also salute a life of a senior. Today, we'll be talking about end-of-life care and grief recovery. And with us are Rebecca Allen, Community Nurse Educator with Crossroads Hospice, and Jenny Lee Schmidt, Certified Grief Recovery Specialist with Change Navigators. And our celebrated senior is World War II veteran Gilbert Aguirre. Thanks for being here, Rebecca, and tell me a bit about Crossroads Hospice. Well, Crossroads Hospice provides hospice care to patients in all of Metro Atlanta. Um, Currently, we have right around 380 patients. Most of our patients are located in assisted living facilities, skilled nursing facilities, and um, I'd say about 30% of them are at home. In their own homes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And with regard to hospice and being able to receive those services in all those different environments, who pays for hospice? Well, the primary payer source is Medicare. Um, Of course, all of your private insurances and Medicaid also pay for hospice. But we're not limited to the payer source. We accept patients regardless of their ability to pay. And not all hospice companies do that, I would imagine. Um, If you're a Medicare provider, you're required to do that. Okay, wonderful. So then it's covered by Medicare. Mm -hmm. Okay. But if they live, for example, in assisted living or nursing home care, they still have to pay for the cost of the facility. So it's just the hospice services that are covered by Medicare. Correct. Um, Unless in a skilled nursing facility, Medicaid is paying for it. Georgia is what's known as a pass-through state. So the hospice pays what Medicaid would have paid, but then Medicaid reimburses them. Okay, great. And so that's very helpful because that's the last thing people want to worry about when a family member's dying is how do we pay for this? Yes, right? and, so. and that's usually what we tell patients and families in the beginning is let's not worry about that. And we don't. We get them taken care of. What do other people worry about when they're making end-of-life decisions? I think one of the biggest things for families is making sure that they're doing exactly what their family member would have wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, If the patient has an advanced directive and you can show them in writing what that person wanted, but before they got to this point, you know, when they were able to make their own decisions, it's usually a lot easier for them. So having their plan put out in place so others can carry that out. Yes. I can tell you when you say, you know, making sure that they get what they want, my dad um, died in January of 2013, and prior to that, he went on hospice. And the only thing he wanted was to eat bacon and peanuts. And so <laughs> we had to make sure that my mother allowed hospice to allow him. <laughs> because, to eat. Yes, because hospice had the f- philosophy of do what you want to do at this stage. That's right. Uh, so, so how do we incorporate the families and the differences between what the patient wants and getting the care and also the dynamics of the family? Well, um, 
We work very closely with families because it is extremely important that after the patient has died, the family is, the, the way they deal with it, whether or not they have a good experience or a bad experience is based on the decisions they've made mm-hmm. and the care that they got their loved one. So not all families agree on what that's supposed to look like. And when we work with all of them to have a better understanding, to all get on the same page, we usually have better results. You know, it's important at that time in a family's life that they understand that there are no rights and there are no wrongs. People simply have to do what it is they have to do to get through it. Mm -hmm. And everybody needs to support them. Right. And I imagine that that's going to go a long way with their grief process, which we're going to hear about grief from our next guest as well, is setting up the right or wrong, Mm because there is no right or wrong, uh, way to handle the last stages of someone's life. Correct. Yeah. So, but Crossroads actually has a lot of different programs to help foster what families are going through as well as to support the patient. Tell me about some of the programs. I think one of of the um, most beneficial programs is our watch program in EMC. EMC is even more care. Traditionally, there are different levels of hospice care and the reimbursement um, for each level gets higher and higher. The highest level is general inpatient or continuous care. But in order to be reimbursed for that, the patient has to have symptoms that cannot be controlled in their home environment. Well, Crossroads offers even more care, and that is not based on their symptoms. It's simply based on what their need is. You know, like Medicare does not recognize um, someone actively dying as a symptom that requires 24-hour care or being in a facility. Crossroads does recognize that. And so, when Crossroads recognizes that, it's my understanding, or correct me, um, is that the even more care means that y'all are making more daily visits than what maybe another hospice company would do. So you, maybe it's eight well, visits versus two visits, or maybe it's a longer visit versus a shorter visit. Well, the, the watch program is actually visits. Even more care is someone from Crossroads at the bedside 24 hours a day. Okay. So permanent mm-hmm. residency until the yes. person passes. Okay. Yes. Um, our owners are very committed. It was part of the reason why they started the company. They feel like nobody should die alone, um, and it's called the attendant death rate. Um, otherwise, someone is from the hospice is at the bedside. The national average is like 22%. When you break that down, that's Monday through Friday, 8 to 5. Crossroads Atlanta, our average last month was 93%. And so I'd just like to remind everyone that you're listening to Senior Salute Radio, presented by the Elder and Disability Law Firm at Victoria L. Collier, with guests Rebecca Allen, who we're speaking with now, and Jenny Schmidt, who we will be speaking with in a second, and Gilbert Aguirre. And so, Rebecca, with the different levels of hospice care and different reimbursement rates. Tell me about what palliative care is, because that's like a newer term that people are using. Is that hospice care? Um, There is 
palliative care that's covered separately, but hospices provide palliative care. The difference between the two are in order to be in hospice, you, the life expectancy is six months or less if the disease takes on a normal progression, normal being the key word there. Mm -hmm. To be in a palliative care program, um, you simply have to have a terminal illness. And does Medicare cover palliative care as well? Um, currently, there is some coverage for it. Um, it's just that it's not as many services as you get with hospice. And so with regard to the six months or less to live, um, I've known people who've been on hospice for years. Yes. So how does that happen? Well, oddly enough, um, when you start focusing on managing someone's symptoms, putting them in control, and making them happy, they get better, not worse. Right. So often they're, you know, in a stable environment, which maybe they weren't before. Mm -hmm. And there are certainly terminal illnesses that could lead in the natural course that just they're unnatural. <laughs> and I don't want to call them unnatural, but you know, we don't all have the same course. And that's the key to aging and also to dying is mm -hmm. that everyone's course is very different. Yes, it is. Um, and so do you have a relationship with in, an inpatient hospice facility in town? Does Crossroads? Yes. Um, we contract with inpatient units throughout Atlanta. Um, and we do that rather than have our own because there's no one location that would best suit all of our patients. Um, and when we put someone in an inpatient unit, we're doing it under contract. So we're also there managing the care. So you have two separate people, you know, two separate hospices that are managing the care. And I think it comes out better for the patient and family because Crossroads doesn't really care if the inpatient unit is, well, our biggest concern is how our patient is being taken care of. Not necessarily where. Right. Okay. And so there's two other programs I really just want you to touch on. Um, and the first is you have a Hispanic outreach. So tell me about that. Well, rather than um, go off in a direction of like a cardiac program or a respiratory program um, being disease-specific, Crossroads decided to go more in the direction of what our patients and families needed. So as um, we've had an increase in Hispanic patients, we developed a Hispanic program also. So, so instead of not serving the need, you've actually have brought in people who are trained to be able to Correct. communicate properly and then provide that service to them as well. Correct. Great. Very inclusive there. And today is the 70th anniversary of D-Day, and we are celebrating or memorializing that. Um, and I see that Crossroads also has a Veterans Recognition Program. Yes. Um, we were one of the first hospices to have the Veterans Recognition Program, and it's one of the largest. Um, we not only recognize all of our patients that are veterans, but in the facilities that we serve, we recognize the, all the veterans there. And you recognize them through personal certificates and yes, awards. Um, yes, and um, we do ceremonies and bring in 
all different kinds of things to recognize them. That's beautiful. And so, Rebecca, how can people contact Crossroads Hospice if they want more information about hospice services? Well, they can go to our website um, or they can call our local number. And what is your website? Our website is crossroadshospice.com. If you're looking for more educational information about hospice, we have another website that's crossroadsu.org. And is that the letter U or is that Y-O-U? The letter U, as in university. Excellent. Well, this is Rebecca Allen with the Community Nurse Educator with Crossroads Hospice. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you. You're welcome. And again, just as a reminder, this is Senior Salute Radio, and we're listening to guests Rebecca Allen, Jenny Lee Schmidt, and Gilbert Aguirre on end-of-life decisions and grief recovery. And so I'd like to ask you, Jenny, do you go by Jenny Lee or Jenny? Jenny would be fine. Jenny's fine. Great. And so you are a certified grief recovery specialist. Tell me what that is. Well, there's an organization called the Grief Recovery Institute. It was founded in the mid-80s by a gentleman who had come up with a series of activities that really helped him um, recover from a, a serious grief experience. And he was so demonstratively recovered and healed from that that people started asking him if he would facilitate them through the same process. So over time, he's codified the process, used it on many, many people here and abroad, um, and certified people like myself who also want to provide that kind of service. So without infringing on any you know, copyright and special trade secrets, can you share some of what that process looks like? Certainly. I definitely want to educate people as to what's available um, because there are a number of different ways to, to work through grief and a number, number of different kind of um, maybe programs or organizations you might turn to. A couple things that are unique about the Grief Recovery Institute. Uh, number one, we don't consider grief to be... Um, it might be wrong to say it's not a problem, but it's not, you know, a diagnosable type problem. It's really just the natural, normal reaction to a, a loss experience. And so um, we place a real focus on not judging or analyzing anyone's experience, but just providing a place where they can work through the emotions related to that experience. Um, I think another thing that's a differentiator about what we do is we try to shift the focus off simply retelling and, and talking about the experience multiple times in, a, in an intellectual way because we really recognize that grief is a condition of the heart. It's um, the equivalent of a broken leg, but it's a broken heart. So we really try to target the activities to completing the emotions that, that are around that broken heart. And with like a broken leg, you know, you go to a doctor, you get a cask, a cast, you're inconvenienced for a little while, and everybody wants to, you know, empathize with you for a little bit, but then they're like, okay, get over it. Um, do you see the same thing with grief of the heart where, first of all, people are trying to help. They say the right things or they say the wrong things. What are the kind of things people try to do when they're trying to repair someone else's heart? Well, you bring up such a great point. That does indeed happen. And if I could start by saying sometimes um, – people impose some of that on themselves because a lot of us are not as open to the idea of getting help for a broken heart as we are for a broken leg, right? No one would hesitate to go right to the hospital if they had a broken leg, but there's some kind of stigma against getting the same kind of attention for your broken heart. So, um, But you're right, the way people interact with us is not always very effective. Well, sometimes, you know, as far as the not reaching out to get help, people are embarrassed. They made maybe not the best choices that broke, that led to their broken heart. (laughs) (laughs) You know, things like that. So, but what are the kinds of, you know, consoling that people try to do? 
Well, we actually have a list of about six myths related to grief. Um, one of the myths is time heals all wounds. So sometimes um, people don't have much to offer. They just think if you isolate and, and spend enough time, you'll feel better. Another myth is that um, keeping busy will, will heal your broken heart. I think many of us have probably tried that and found that not to be true. But people might encourage you to say, oh, take your mind off it and not give you an opportunity to share about it. It's really just avoiding versus healing. It can be. And I think the reason that we, when we're trying to serve other people who are in grief, the reason we avoid it is because we're not comfortable with grief ourselves, nor are we very well educated as to how to help each other. Mm -hmm. So people do have good intentions, as you say, but, but we also sort of know we're not very effective at it, even when we try. Now, grief commonly, or at least my perception is that we all understand it when someone dies. We go through the grieving process and they even talk about the five stages of recovery or depression or whatever. And I'll say that, you know, I mean, years ago, um, about nine years ago now, uh, my partner and I, we were trying to have children and we got pregnant and we, la we lost our child after an amniocentesis procedure. And I had gone through grief in my life before, but never like that. But it doesn't always take death to experience the depths of what I would consider grief. What are other life experiences that cause that? Well, there's actually at least 40 different life experiences. And as you say, there's sort of a top two or three that people can think of, death, divorce, um, loss of some someone or something significant, maybe a job loss. But it really goes to other things. And in fact, I was thinking about this in terms of the senior community, things like a diagnosis that changes your abilities and your habits and routines, that would cause grief. Um, things like making a move from your family home into a care facility, there's grief associated with that. Losing the right to drive your own car. Yes. There's, exactly. So there's, there's a lot of things that can cause grief in a senior's life. And even there are some things that are not recognized as a grief-causing um, situation. But in, in truth, if there's, any, if there's change involved, there might be some loss involved. So for instance, even a marriage or a graduation or something else that we recognize as being a happy occasion, there's also loss of friends or familiarity or freedom or financial freedom, things like that. So there's quite a long list of things that can cause grief. Right. When I read that there was 40 plus things, I started actually <laughs> trying to figure out what are those 40 things and then trying to create more things that wouldn't be on your list already. Um, that's how I challenged myself. Um, yeah. But so, so we talk about it. We know that certainly grief can lead to depression, which is a diagnosable um, mm -hmm. situation. But what are the actual effects of grief? Yeah, I would say there are short-term effects and long-term effects. In the short term, people... Um, may have a, a drastic change in their level of energy, in their ability to concentrate. They may start to sleep too much or maybe too little, eat too much or eat too little. And all of those things affect your ability to perform, much less enjoy your everyday life. So those are really significant in the short term. And as you say, it can be depression and other emotions like that. Well, and eating too much or eating too little or just erratic behaviors in general can lead to other medical conditions. Certainly. And just really start compounding on itself. Mm -hmm. Um, so how do people get to the point where they can ask for help, you know, where emotionally or, or how, what would you recommend that a friend say to another friend to push them in that direction? Mm -hmm. Or I think, you know, one of the services I offer to organizations that, that have education components is helping people understand a little bit more about grief and about how to support each other in grief. And there's just things you can do to bring to people's awareness, like, um, making people aware of the myths of grief and that time and keeping busy are probably not 
going to be effective strategies. The fact that they're dealing with their emotions and that so focusing on talking and storytelling may not tap into the to their ability to recover from those emotions, things like that. And Victoria, I wanted to mention also, in terms of the longer term um, implications of grief, we have a recognition that grief is cumulative. And by the time many of us come into a significant grief experience like the one you had or mine in the recent years was the death of my grandmother, who was a very significant part of my life, you've You've lived through so many other of those 40 life experiences that cause grief and maybe not paid them much attention so that the one that presents at the time that really brings you down is really the accumulation of the grief that you may still be experiencing in your broken heart. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And I'll give an example that I would never have thought I would share on the show. But since you brought that up and it's cumulative is my um, my mother, uh, my original mother, uh, left my dad when we I was two years old and um, and then later died when I was six and you know you grow throughout your life doing normal things and then when my children were two years old I started acting out as a person not knowing I started doing behaviors that weren't normal for me and so I started seeing a counselor to find out why am I acting why am I destructing my life because I have a wonderful <laughs> life why would I do something destructive to to hinder this life of mine that I've created that I wanted and ultimately what was shared is that I was still grieving over my mother and the trigger point was me having two-year-old children which is when she left me Mm, so you never know when that grief or how it's going to come out Um, and then obviously how to repair that but um, now when you're talking about recovery is this an individual recovery process or can it be done in groups I offer both kind of services. Um, the groups are, are a place where we'll have at most 12 people go through the program at the same time. And if, the, if it does get to be that size, we'll break out into small groups for the individual sharing. So there is a, an education and discussion component. But then there's also homework activities to be done. And those are the activities that start reaching into your emotions and your heart. And an important part of our protocol is to share the results of those activities with a living witness. Um, as opposed to reading a letter to a gravesite or to a stream or something like that. We feel that the human ears are an mm-hmm. important component on our equation. So that is an eight-week program, and it, you can do it in a group. For those who prefer not to work in a group setting or need more flexibility in, in terms of when and how long they spend time with me, I can certainly do that in a one-on-one coaching experience too. Well, you are listening to Senior Salute Radio, presented by the Elder and Disability Law Firm of Victoria L. Collier, with guest Rebecca Allen talking about hospice care and Jenny Lee Schmidt talking about grief recovery. And so when someone goes through like an eight-week program, I imagine that, you know, at the end of the eight weeks, it's not like you turn off the light and say, all my grief is gone. (laughs) Um, And some people may reach it before then. Some people may continue. Now, is grief recovery potentially a lifelong experience um, or can people feel like I'm done with that let's move on to the next thing (laughs) I'm gonna say and and both and I want to applaud you for a great question one of the things I love about the grief recovery program is not only do you go through the experience and get relief and recovery from the event that brought you there but now you walk away with a set of tools and activities you can repeat for either grief experiences from your past that are, that are still impacting you, like the story you shared, or, you know, in your next breakup or your next move <laughs> or your next whatever um, kind of a change causes grief. So you come away more equipped and able to um, take care of yourself in a better way. 
Does your program teach not how, how to not have that next breakup? <laughs> hey, if someone could bottle that, that would be great. But actually, it's interesting you say that. I was just reading uh, an article from one of the gentlemen who runs the Grief Institute. He has an article about how to not sabotage your marriage or your next marriage. And his premise is that there's grief related to your very first teenage breakup. And if more of us would go back and resolve that grief, we might not run into some of the problems Absolutely. that we have in our marriages. Absolutely. Great. So, Jenny, how can people get more information about grief recovery in your process? Yes, I have a website. It is changenavigatorsllc.com. It's important to put the LLC in there. And I have a number of resources there. Number one, there's several pages that talk about both individual and group grief recovery options. There's some free articles and um, also an opportunity to purchase the grief recovery handbook. And I would also love to um, offer to the listeners of your program a one-hour free consultation if they'd like to talk about it with me in person and find out whether they'd like to work together. Right. And I imagine whether they're an individual recovery or going through group recovery there's different rates for that so it helps anyone who's on any part of their journey yes great and is there anything else uh or a story you can share the success story that you can share on grief recovery i will um there's a a person in my group that i had been sharing about grief recovery in a current group that i'm running i'd been sharing about it and she was a person that was resistant to pursuing really what I would say any kind of treatment about it. She, uh, there was just a, a resistance there. Um, she finally did decide to do it, and that's often the type of person that has some of the most significant breakthroughs because the activities are doable. Uh, they're not going to kill you. They might be a little scary on the front end, but if you, if you commit to doing as much as you're comfortable with, you can really get some strong results. And so I've, I've seen this person sort of had a, a weight lifted and a, a real relief from um, the, the loss she was recovering from, which was also uh, the death of her mother, like many of us have experienced. I can imagine it's, it is difficult because you're vulnerable already. You're not comfortable with feeling vulnerable already. Mm-hmm. And now you're asking for help, which none of us like to do. Mm-hmm. And then you've got to review your own behaviors. So what a beautiful win is to be able to watch other people emerge from that. So. It's really gratifying. It's wonderful to be able to support yeah. people that way. Great. Tell us your website again. It is changenavigatorsllc.com. Great. Thank you, Jenny, for being here on our show. Thank you. And you are listening to Senior Salute Radio. <laughs> presented by the Elder and Disability Law Firm of Victoria L. Collier with guest Rebecca Allen from Crossroad Hospice and Jenny Lee Schmidt from Change Navigators. And now I'd like to turn to our segment where we salute a senior every single Friday. And today is a special day because it's the 70th anniversary of D-Day. And that's June 6th. 1944 is when that happened, and today we have special guest Gilbert Aguirre, who is a World War II veteran who was not in Normandy on D-Day. However, he was there shortly thereafter, passing through on his venture to the Battle of the Bulge. Welcome, Mr. Aguirre. Thank you. Mr. Aguirre, tell us your experience and start anywhere you want to. Well, I was... uh in the first uh, 20-year-old draft, that was in uh, in December of 1943. So you were drafted? Yes. Because we only usually think about the draft with Vietnam, but people were, in fact, drafted. Uh, absolutely, yes. It, it had to be because we were in a real danger in those places. Absolutely. And you were in the infantry? 
That's, which that's means right. which means feet on the ground. You were one of the soldiers in the heat of conflict. Uh, my first camp was uh, Camp Van Doren in Mississippi. And uh, that was uh, near the town of Centerville. And uh, the biggest thing we had there was uh, a, a bayonet drill. That will kill you if anything, really. Just using uh -huh. the bayonet against your own people because you use them sheath. So you learn the experience, but you're not killing your own people. Right. Right. All right. And so where did you go after Mississippi? Well, then, uh, well, then, then we went to uh, well, the, the problem was that right after we went to Mississippi, the big three, that was uh, Stalin, uh, Churchill, and uh, FDR, mm -hmm. decided that uh, they would uh, start winning the war in Europe. So that was, uh, they canceled all that training that we had. So they wanted to stop just fighting the war, but they actually made a decision, we want to win this thing. I mean, right, they're right. going to work together. And so you had heard of D-Day, obviously, at this point, right? Oh, yes. And how did you feel getting drafted after that, knowing that, look, we're over there fighting and we're not winning right now. I'm drafted and I'm in the infantry. How did that feel as a young boy? Oh, well, or a, a young man. You weren't a boy anymore, a man. <laughs> Definitely a, a good-looking man at that. Well, uh, right after that, we... Uh, we concentrated on the Air Corps so much that uh, we had a lot of uh, young men in the, in the, in the, uh, air, in the uh, back then the, the uh, Air Corps and the Army were the same. There wasn't a separate corps. But the, those men that were in the uh, portion of the air, there were too many of them, so they were all put in the uh, infantry. So we got to train them. And we trained them until uh, we went to uh, England. And there, there we, I got my first uh, portion of, uh, of, of uh, fish and chips. <laughs> there was a, uh, a group of men of uh, Englishmen on the uh, cliffs. We were near the cliffs. And they, they took care of the uh, gunnery mm -hmm. when the planes came over. And I got to know one of them, and he took me to one of these places for uh, Christian ships. A better meal than the military serves, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so. And so you were in England, and then did you get orders at some point to go to France? Yes, we did. By the way, we, in, in England, we stayed in, in a church, and uh, they, they were, they, they, the bunks were wooden, and they had uh, hay in them. You can imagine back in those days, it's still having that kind of system. Right, right. When I was in the military, I was in the Air Force, mm -hmm. and I was a carpenter, 
when the desert storms uh, started in the uh, early 1990s. And as a carpenter, our role was to go to the base over in the desert and build the hardback tents for everyone mm-hmm. to live in so then the rest of everybody could go over there. Very different than being in a church with, uh, uh, you know, hay and, uh, metal, you know, hay and wood to sleep on. Anyway, uh, after that, we crossed the channel and... Of course, the channel is that. If you've ever been on it, it's very choppy. And then a lot of men got sick. But uh, we, we, we were finally we got to France. And uh, I was in the 99th Division, or Infantry Division. They was called the Battle Babies because we. Uh, just about the time we got there, within two weeks' time, we were the Germans attacked our position. Now the 99th and the 106th divisions were uh, were together. They uh, they formed the the, uh, what they call the, the, uh, they were opposite each other next next to each other and that's where they for some reason the, the Germans must have heard about that because the 106 had just moved in mm-hmm. and they hadn't in some cases hadn't even set up a lot of their equipment so they knew that was a still spot. And so that's when they, that's where they created that, that surprise surge. That's right. Which is now known as the Battle of the Bulge. Right. And so where were you when that was going on, and what was your role? Well, I was on the line just like everybody else. And we were, as, as we saw the, the Germans coming, they they picked a, a a beautiful time because everything was in their favor. The snow was heavy, and it, uh, it was foggy, and that meant that our aircraft couldn't couldn't help us. Very reminiscent of D-Day, where it was extremely right. stormy and foggy and everything. Right. And did you have thoughts of that at all while you were there on that day, as far as D-Day uh, from before, you know, just six months before? Or do you not really have the opportunity to have any thoughts like that? You're just in the moment trying to do what you can to survive. Well, you were so busy doing what you could to keep the enemy from storming the your position, you know. Well, you are listening to Senior Salute Radio, presented by the Elder and Disability Law Firm at Victoria L. Collier, with guests Rebecca Allen, Jenny Lee Smith, and who we're hearing from now is World War II veteran Gilbert Aguirre, who was in the Battle of the Bulge. Now, Mr. Aguirre, you know, so you're doing what you need to to survive at that time. Can you tell us what that was like. None of us were there. None of us have seen battle um, that well, are in this room. I was in the military, and when my 
unit went to Turkey to set up the bases so that everybody else could come over. I was one of two females in my shop, a shop of men, which are carpenters. Mm-hmm. My commander made me stay back, so mm-hmm. I didn't get to go see any of that. And I say get to go as if it's a, you know, a joy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it is different. I'm a veteran, but you're a combat veteran. Mm-hmm. Please explain to some of us, well, you know. We had what uh, was called the... Uh, the, the uh, Siegfried Line. That was the German uh, last line of defense before they actually were in Germany. And of course we had to overcome that. And that, that was filled with uh, not only uh, foxholes, but they had uh, pillboxes made of concrete and they were so so uh, so positioned that one could help the other would fire on the other if it had to. Mm-hmm. It was so they could set up a terrific crossfire, mm-hmm. which, which was hard to overcome. But we did overcome. How did we overcome? Well, did you ever personally feel a shift of oh my gosh, what are we doing to you know? I did yeah. What happened was someone had the idea of of putting steel steel plates on tanks and pushing dirt over the pillboxes. And that way they kept them from firing. They... Put enough of them out of action that uh, we could move for them. Excellent, ingenious. Whoever did thought of that, you know, right. um, really paved the way. Absolutely. And so, after that, I see that you have a um, commemorative pl- plaque over here, the, a frame with many things in it. Amen. Tell me about some of the things that are in your frame. This is the Fort of Guerra. You've seen that. Woven over the shoulder. Mm-hmm. That was given to us by the king of. Uh, of. Brussels. Uh, Belgium. At so the king time. of Belgium yeah. gave you these to wear over your shoulder, these That's ribbons. Since, because we pushed the Germans out of his country. That must have been an honor to be able to yes, receive and, and wear that. This, of course, is the uh, infantry badge. Mm-hmm. This is the regular infantry badge, and this is the combat. Okay. You, you had to be in combat for 30 consecutive days to receive that. Even Patton didn't get that because he was recalled, uh, you know, for orders and didn't get 30 days consecutive. I was reading some of the history on Patton, and it seems like he was hard to uh, rein in a bit. Uh, one of the most 
wonderful uh, people to have on your side as far as combat and strategy, but hard to rein in on a personal level. <laughs> so what's this one here in the center? That's the, that's the uh, Bronze Star. And who is awarded with the Bronze Star? I, I was awarded that uh, just for uh, special... <laughs> How should I put it? Uh, Gallantry. Gallantry in the face of the enemy. Yes. So. And then he's there with the uh, dog tags. The this, do is a, this is a presidential, uh, presidential citation mm -hmm. given to us by. I was awarded by uh, President uh, Roosevelt, but given us to by President Truman because he died. President Roosevelt. President Roosevelt died. And so years later, you are 91 years old. Yes, I am. And did you, over the years, stay in contact with the members of your group that were surviving? We did to some extent. Where was that? Uh, every year we had the uh, an annual convention in different cities. This particular one was in 1997, in July 7th to 14th. So we did see uh, different people at these conventions. Good. Now, you know, my experience has been that military members, regardless of what war they've served in, they're not always open about their experiences. What makes it different for you to want to be able to share your experience? Well, soon there won't be many of us to, uh, to share it, I guess. So uh, I don't mind sharing uh, Experiences that that don't affect uh, anything. Well, I for one am very thankful for your being willing to come on our show, Senior Salute, to share your experience, um, both just as a citizen of the United States, but also a veteran, uh, to be able to listen and hear, and ex you know, not necessarily experience for hand firsthand, but through your words, what are forefathers have gone through and our foremothers have gone through and so thank you mr aguirre for being here today thank you with them and you have been listening to senior salute which airs live every friday at 3 p.m and is also available 24 7 online by visiting senior salute radio dot business radio x dot com you can also follow us on twitter and like us on facebook and i would like to thank our guests and our listeners we salute you